0: This is the RTE News at One with Brian Dobson. Good afternoon, the headlines this lunchtime. RTE has published updated legal advice on the publication of financial settlements to former executives. In a submission to the United Nations top court, Ireland has contended that Israel is committing serious breaches of international law against the Palestinians. And the last remaining phone boxes in Ireland are being removed a century after the first one was installed. The news in detail with Brian Jennings. The RT Director General, Kevin Backhurst, has published updated legal advice in relation
1: to the disclosure of financial settlements to former executives. It is stated that publication of such figures would contravene employees' contractual and statutory rights, thereby exposing RT to avoidable legal challenge. Separately, RT has written to the former members of the Executive who've departed the organisation since 2016, requesting their consent to waive their right to confidentiality. Here's Tommy Maskell of our political staff.
2: Following calls from senior politicians, including the Taoiseach, for maximum transparency in relation to exit payments to former RTE executives, today the national broadcaster published updated legal advice. It states that the publication of such payments would contravene employees' contractual and statutory rights, exposing RTE to avoidable legal challenge. RTE is also advised to exercise extreme caution, having regard for the civil and criminal consequences Attaching to such disclosure. The chairs of both the Oroctus Media Committee and Dahl Public Accounts Committee have welcomed the publication of the legal advice. Both Neve Smith and Brian Stanley have said that it underlines the importance of avoiding such deals in the future. Mr. Stanley has also called for the former executives concerned to waive their anonymity and disclose the amount of money they were paid. Tommy Meskill, RTE News, Leinster House.
1: Ireland has presented its case to the International Criminal Court in The Hague on Israel's occupation of the Palestinian territories. In total, 52 countries are putting forward arguments to the United Nations top court about the issue during week-long hearings. The court was asked by the UN General Assembly in 2022 for an advisory or non-binding opinion on the occupation. This morning, the Attorney General, Rossa Fanning, made a submission on behalf of the Irish government, in which he said that Ireland had condemned atrocities committed by Hamas on the 7th of October against Israel.
3: However, international law limits the use of force in self-defence to no more than what is necessary and proportionate. Ireland's view is that these limits have been exceeded by Israel in its military response to the Hamas attack.
1: The Chief Executive of the Football Association of Ireland, Jonathan Hill, has said that the payment of €12,000 to him in lieu of holidays not taken was a miscalculation. Appearing before the Public Accounts Committee, Mr Hill revealed that his suggestion that he be compensated in the same manner as an unnamed employee was a throwaway remark. The FAI President, Paul Cook, said his confidence in the CEO had been challenged by events around the payments. Our soccer correspondent, Tony O'Donoghue.
4: During another difficult appearance for the Football Association before an Oroctus committee, the payment made to CEO Jonathan Hill in lieu of holidays, which led to an investigation and state funding being suspended, was once again examined. Mr. Hill told the Public Accounts Committee that an unnamed staff member had applied via email for payment in lieu of holidays not taken. In response to this email, Mr. Hill agreed the request and made a suggestion to the then Director of Finance in relation to his own unused holidays, saying, can we negotiate the same for me, please, which he claims was a throwaway remark. Paul Cook, the President of the FAI, says that his confidence in the CEO, Jonathan Hill, has been challenged by the events surrounding the payment. Chairman Tony Cohan says he does have confidence in Mr Hill and believes the FAI as an organisation has come a long way. However, he acknowledges the slip up in relation to the holiday payment, but says that accountability for the issue is on the organisation, including Mr Hill. Deputy Malcolm Byrne asked if COVID funds were used by the FAI to pay off debt, which is not permitted under the terms of the COVID-19 resilience funding conditions. FAI Director of Finance Dan McCormick revealed that around 1 million euro of Sport Ireland funding was used for capital debt repayment.
1: Telecommunications company Air has announced that it has begun the process of removing the last of the country's phone boxes. At their peak, there were around 3,300 kiosks across Ireland, but today just over 100 remain. Our work and technology correspondent, Brian O'Donovan.
2: The first phone box was installed in Ireland almost 100 years ago. Of the 105 remaining units, 11 will become digital kiosks, while the other 94 will be removed over the coming months. In recent years, disused phone boxes have been donated to community groups and repurposed as defibrillator sites, tourist information points and even religious shrines. Many former kiosks have been transformed into electric vehicle chargers and that process will continue. To mark the end of the phone box era, Air has refurbished a 100 year old kiosk, which will go on public display in a museum later this year. Brian O'Donovan, RTE News, at Air Headquarters in Dublin. And now the weather
5: RTE
1: Radio 1 Weather with Grant. For effective, efficient, and balanced warmth throughout your home, choose Grant Uflex Underfloor Heating. Visit grant.ie. Today there will be sunny spells and scattered showers. That will be most frequent over the western half of the country. Some will be heavy. There may be hail and isolated thunderstorms. There may also be sleet on high ground. Highest temperatures will range from 5 to 8 degrees. And as a warning, that west to northwest winds will reach gale force at times for the rest of today and overnight on coastal waters from Roach's Point to Lupe to Rosson Point. Brian.
0: Thank you Brian. Still to come this lunchtime, the Director General of RTE Kevin Backhurst on that updated legal advice over exit payments to former executives and proposals to bring the broadcaster onto the control of the state's financial watchdog. Soccer is governing body. The FAI admits using Sport Ireland funding to pay down debt. We'll hear more from that Doyle committee. The Attorney General presents Ireland's case at the International Court of Justice against Israel over illegal settlements and details of this year's St. Patrick's Festival. TV host Patrick Keel. Will be the Grand Marshal of the Dublin Parade.
6: Your TV licence supports essential public media in Ireland. If you have recently paid your TV licence, thank you. For more, see tvlicence.ie or visit any post office. Remember, if you have a TV, you must have a TV licence. Brought to you by the Government of Ireland.
1: New from Irish National Opera, Richard Strauss's sensuous masterpiece Salome, based on the play by Oscar Wilde, with star soprano Sinead Campbell-Wallace. Salome, from 12th to 16th of March. Funded by the Arts Council. Tickets from 35, 50
0: are on sale now. Booking fees may apply. See Gosh Energy Theatre. Hello again, you're listening to the uh, News at One. Now we're turning to that news that RT has published the legal advice in relation to the confidentiality of exit payments to senior executives who left the organisation over the last eight years. Solicitors Arthur Cox say there would be civil and criminal consequences from disclosing the information. I'm joined here in studio by the RT Director General, Kevin Backhurst. Welcome to the programme, Mr Backhurst. Um, so the advice from the solicitors, and you asked them to, to revisit the issue in 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 recent weeks is, and I quote, that the publication of such information would contravene employees' contractual and strategy rights thereby exposing RTE to avoidable legal challenge. We must advise you to exercise extreme caution. Now that's the advice from the lawyers. It's your job to make the decision. What is your decision on foot of that advice? My decision is,
7: uh, I went back to Arthur Cox to ask them for renewed uh, legal advice. We had initial legal advice uh, in October last year, which we also published, which was very similar to this, actually. But I asked them to look at, uh, the legal advice in the light of, um, the, 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 the request we were getting, you know, from a number of, uh, bodies and politicians, um, to see if we could release some of this information, to see if there was any way to drive further transparency. I think this legal advice is the most, most robust and the clearest legal advice that I've received in my career. And you just read out some of it, Brian. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, I genuinely think unless I, you know, if I, w- unless I would take a decision that in my role, um, that I would be deliberately going out and breaking the law, um, I'd need to adhere to this legal advice. So I think the key thing for me is can I find other ways of driving transparency and particularly looking forward? Are there other things we need to do, um, to ensure that you know, we can um, exit people from the organisation, but in a way that satisfies
0: the need for transparency and oversight. Right. But just to be clear about this, based on this legal advice, it is, it is RT will not be releasing details of these exit packages going back to 2016?
7: I think we're completely unable to. Um, you know, and I know there's a lot of pressure early in the week um, to do that, but I, I think people will have seen this legal advice. I think people will appreciate, um, as a public organisation, we cannot be in the business of breaking the law and going against very clear legal advice and it's not just breaking the law it's about the you know potential liability that i could expose RT to if i were to do this and i you know I'm, I'm also strongly the view that i don't think i'd get agreement from the board to break the law deliberately and in the face of this legal advice what
0: you say you have done is written to these individuals asking them to waive confidentiality now at this stage have you had any replies uh we only sent the letters out
7: yesterday so we were waiting for those replies um you know, I, I should say, I, you know, I want to explore every avenue of doing this. I don't want expectations to get very high because, um, you know, that is entirely their gift to mm-hmm. waive their confidentiality. Um, and if th- some of them agree to do that, will you publish those names and details then? If they agree to waive the confidentiality, clearly that would be in a, a way we can publish some of those um, details that's one of the only avenues that we can pursue as to some of these payments going back to 2016.
0: Right, so d- would that have to be uh, in the case of all the individuals or could you release uh, d- details relation to those individuals who might be willing to allow that to happen. I'm just thinking mm. of the process of elimination here mm. that other people who want to maintain their confidentiality mm. might have that breached by that process. Yeah, we'd have to look at that very
7: carefully. I mean, you know, I think the initial advice is if individuals come back uh, and say that they are willing to waive confidentiality mm. then we Obviously, we look at the way that we can release that, and that would be my intention, yeah. You see,
0: there's another piece of advice from from Arthur Cox in these documents you've released today in relation to this, because they say that if RTE was to seek the consent of relevant staff members to release the information, um, data protection guidance clarifies, and I'm quoting from the document here, as a general rule, the GDPR prescribes that if the data subject has no real choice, feels compelled to consent, or will endure negative consequences if they do not consent, then consent will not be valid. Now, in these circumstances where we have a clamour for information, government ministers, doyle committees, um, uh, others looking for this data to be released, can these people give valid consent? Uh, my
7: understanding is that they can individually give that consent. If they want to, they can waive mm. their rights, um, to this. Um, but you're right to point out the wider considerations and the wider considerations are really important from top to bottom you know, of any organization. This isn't just the rights of senior people. I would expect, you know, the, to respect, I would expect to offer the, there's the, exactly the same protection to anyone from you know the highest paid to the lowest paid in this organisation as as set out in law.
0: Right. Um, just in in relation to some of the the context of of all of this, um, why in July last year, Mr. Backhurst, did you say that Rory Coveney quote didn't get a payment going out the door, but he did get quote statutory level kind of payments? Why did you say that when it's reported he got a full year salary? Well, when I said that,
7: what is that? What I what I I was answering a series of questions in a, in a big press scrum on day one in the job. Mm-hmm. Um, I was trying to be as accurate as I can within the realms of, of the confidentiality that's made clear here that he deserves. Um, and statutory level, and it made this maybe a, uh, a, a throwback to coming from the UK, but statutory level would normally mean a week for every year of service, mm-hmm. in my understanding. So I was trying to give an idea that he did get paid. Um, but not an extortionate amount without giving the exact details. So I was trying to tread a careful line between being as open as I possibly could in the circumstances, um, but trying to respect what's been laid out in these
0: legal issues. We, we did a quick back of the envelope calculation here. I wouldn't want to stand mm. over this, uh, other than to say that uh, it's an indication of what a statutory level payment here would mean mm. because it would be capped and it would be less than 20,000 euro.
7: Yeah, so I think that maybe that's where, uh, you know, I maybe
0: misspoke it alive. Mm. A door, so it gave the impression mindes- of, a very, mm. of a very modest payment to somebody who was resigning, and that was the way this, his departure was presented. Yeah,
7: look, I, that's not what I intended at the time. What I meant was, you know, the statutory levels. I understood it, was you would get a week for every year been here. Mm. Rory had been here for 16 years. Um, so it was, you know, around mm. that level. It wasn't a, a huge kind of payment to walk out the door, considering the length of service that any individual... Um, had done that length of service. Well, he was a director
0: expect- of the organisation, so I, he was mm-hmm. on presumably a, a substantial six-figure salary, uh, and a, a year's salary for someone mm-hmm. in that position is is a substantial amount of money. Yeah, I'm not I'm not undermining that. I'm just
7: saying that uh, you know it would be in the level of, you know, what I would expect uh, within legal guidelines of. You know, getting a, a week for every year you've done or whatever
0: for any individual, whatever amount of salary they're on. Do you accept now that agreeing to a confidentiality clause in the case of Rory Coveney and it would seem Richard Collins was a mistake? No, because
7: that is, I think again, as it says in this Arthur Co- Cox letter here, um, in these type of settlement agreements, now whether that's RT or whether it's an, any other semi-state who Many of the semi states have a track record of having to use these kind of agreements to exit people or whether it 's a commercial organization who do the same. These kind of legal agreements are the, the norm um, mm. and as Arthur Cox say, confidentiality clauses are routinely used mm. in these agreements when you go through a legal process, you agree the amount of money you agree you know ideally agree a, a statement that respects the dignity of the individual. And part of that is confidentiality. And if you don't agree confidentiality, confidentiality, the likelihood is... You cannot achieve a legal settlement.
0: But these weren't routine circumstances or conditions that you were mm. operating in. There was Had we just had the, the Dáil committees uh, over the summer, uh, there'd been the revelation in relation to Breda O'Keefe. I think at that stage maybe you were getting ready to, to commission the, the the investigation into that. So there was a clamour for information. You must have known the details of the Coveney and Collins exit packages would at some stage be
7: sought. Yes, and indeed they would at some stage. In fact, they'll be given in the annual report, as they have been every year in terms of exit packages, in a way that is legally... Um, achievable, and those are reported annually every year. It's really important to say going back to 2016, the overall figure for the senior executives who've mm-hmm. left have been reported as a matter of routine in the
0: annual report. But and the, Brito-Keefe, sorry you, mm-hmm. the Brito-Keefe number was wrong. It was, was uh, 50,000 less than she actually well, got. Well, I think they've explained that in terms of... Rounding you know, down? Well, or rounding
7: up. I mean, rounding We're well, down in that case, or rounding up, but I think that's been explained as, a, as an accountancy thing.
0: So will confidentiality clauses continue to be a feature of exit arrangements in RTE?
7: Well, this is what I've asked, um, this is what I say we need to take legal advice on, and I had some initial conversations with Arthur Cox about this. Um, You know, and there are very wide ramifications if you don't, if you're unable to use those. So I think what we need to ensure is that there's an absolute, you know, there is a transparency around the circumstances in which we can use those and where we do use those. Because I think if we're unable to use those, again, going back to the advice from Arthur Cox and our legal advice is These are routinely used across Ireland because employment law in Ireland absolutely rightly gives a very high level of protection to anyone in employment, whether that's at a junior or at a senior level. It is very difficult to, sorry, Brian, it's very difficult to exit people, to sack people. So therefore, you often have to go through a legal process and confidentiality agreements. And it's, this is not just RTE. This is across the piece. These are used. Uh, commonly, or as as Arthur Cox say, routinely in reaching agreements where lawyers or mediation are involved.
0: RT, of course, is a publicly funded organisation. Will in future there be a cap on exit packages? A limit? Well, again, this
7: is something, and this is you know, I, I in discussions with the minister, I said we would look at the use of confidentiality agreements. Ideally, they would become um, very much the exception with the right framework around them, um, and the same goes for a cap. But again, there are ramifications for that. If you put a cap on exit payments and you are going through a period which will have to have shrinking the organisation, you will end up unduly um, shrinking the organisation by losing junior colleagues because you can't afford to pay off more senior people, whether it's under an exit scheme or whatever else, to go. So I don't want... You know, we need to work through. There are very significant ramifications to addressing either of these. I'm very prepared to try and address them, but they're not going to be straightforward.
0: Just before I let you go, Tishuk, among others, has been indicating uh, that the possibility of RTE coming under the remit of the Controller and Auditor mm. General, the, the state's financial watchdog, and mm. was in fact uh, audited by the CnAG maybe 25 30 years mm. ago. Is that something you'd favour? Is it something that could help to rebuild trust in RTE?
7: Look, any measure that will help to rebuild trust in RTE, I would welcome. And I think actually the chair, the RTE chair mentioned this in the first committee hearing I did with her back in July as a possibility that I think she raised it as a possibility actually. So, you know, I I need to, would look at the detail of what that might mean, but it won't be my decision in the end. But I think any measure that, um, will assist me in helping to rebuild the trust of the, in this organization
0: would be welcome. RT Director General Kevin Backer, thanks for talking to us on the program. The Football Association of Ireland has revealed that it used Sport Ireland funding to pay part of its debt. The CEO of the FAI, Jonathan Hill, also told the Doyle Public Accounts Committee today that he made a suggestion in relation to payment for his unused holidays, which was interpreted by the former Director of Finance as a request. Our soccer correspondent, Tony O'Donoghue, was at today's committee hearing, and he joins us now. Tony, tell us first about this suggestion of a payment to Mr Hill in relation to unused holidays.
4: Yeah, well, during his last appearance in Leinster House, that was before the, the Sports and Media Committee last December, uh, Jonathan Hill apologised for what he called the unnecessary and unhelpful distraction uh, over his pay arrangements. Because remember, uh, this arrangement that gave him uh, money in lieu of holidays not taken, that led to a Sport Ireland investigation and the temporary suspension of FAI funding because it meant that his pay had gone over an agreed level. Remember, there was a memorandum of understanding between the FAI and the government which bailed out the FAI effectively in 2020. Uh, Mr. Hill's pay was set to be uh, at the same level as the Secretary General of the Department and uh, a cosy investigation had found that uh, by taking these payments and other benefits in kind, he had exceeded that level. Now, he paid the money back, uh, but the Public Accounts Committee had asked for all the emails in relation to this and I understand that there was a a probe within the FAI. They were very late in bringing their opening statements to the Public Accounts Committee today which annoyed a lot of the deputies uh, and all the emails came redacted which also uh, annoyed everyone in in, in the House today. It was a very robust uh, session and it lasted for well over three and a half hours Uh, and Mr. Hill was asked about uh, his situation. It was an unnamed junior employee who had initially asked for holiday pay instead of um, uh, holidays taken, uh, and that was agreed. And at the time, uh, in response in an email, he said, can I negotiate the same for me as well, please? And he claims that was a throwaway remark. I added a throwaway line to that junior colleague saying, can you
1: negotiate the same for me, please? Question mark, exclamation mark. For me, it's clear that this was not a formal request. And it was in an email back to the junior colleague. I copy the then finance director to the note, um, as I agreed, uh, I, as I agreed as he had done. He obviously takes that line as a request and uses that email chain to go himself to the then chair.
0: Tony, the FAI's president, was repeatedly asked if he had confidence in Mr. Hill.
4: That's right. Paul Cook, uh, recently uh, elected as uh, president of the association, uh, was asked and he said, I have confidence in the senior leadership team and the board going forward. Uh, But uh, Deputy Paul McAuliffe uh, pressed him on this and he said, my confidence has been challenged by the events around uh, the the payment because uh, he might call it a throwaway line. Uh, He said that a former director of finance, uh, Alex O'Connell, had an interpretation of that which wasn't correct. uh, And Deputy McAuliffe, Said it was extraordinary that you would blame a colleague uh, for this. Now, the new independent chair of the FAI is Tony Kiohan and he was asked also if he had uh, a confidence in the uh, chief executive Jonathan Hill, uh, and he said he regretted what had happened, but he has confidence and he feels that the association has come a long way. So
1: you have confidence have in Mr. Confidence Hill? I have confidence in the senior leadership team. Do you have confidence in Mr. Hill? I have confidence in the senior leadership team and the board. To continue the progress that we're making. It, like,
3: I, I appreciate you're serving in a role. You know, it's, it's an important role. It's important. It's to support and volunteers. They want you to, to know. Do you have confidence in Mr. Hill, who's paid a significant amount of money on behalf of the, 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 the sport? My 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 confidence, has certainly, by the factors,
8: has been challenged by the events.
0: Tony, what about uh, this um, evidence at the committee that Sports Ireland funds were used for debt repayments?
4: Yes, the current and uh, newly installed uh, Director of Finance, Dan McCormack, uh, agreed that that was the case. But that leads to a lot of issues again and repercussions for, for the FAI because Sport Ireland are the body that looks after all the funding for all the national governing bodies and their Chief Executive uh, Dr Una May was present at the Public Accounts Committee as well. And if there were monies paid uh, to pay off legacy debt, that would be in contravention of the MOU, the Memorandum of Understanding uh, that I was uh, referring to. Uh, so so this is important, and uh, Dr Rudameh said at one point that the wording might be open to misinterpretation, uh, but nonetheless it was confirmed uh, by the FAI that money was used uh, to pay off debt. In relation to reducing levels of debt, I mean, almost all of this was met through the FAI's own income streams. So for clarity, there was one instance that, this, that Sport Ireland's funding was used against capital debt repayments, but this was
3: isolated to a case of legacy commercial liability with a form and of... And Dan, how much was that?
4: It was under a million euro. So Can you give remember. me the exact amount, please? I, th- I think it was it was, a, it was just under a million euro, I think, across the two schemes.
0: And that's the FAI's Director of Finance, Dan McCormick, ending that report from Tony O'Donoghue. To The Hague next, where Ireland has been making its opening statement to an international court of justice hearing into ongoing violation by Israel of the right of the Palestinian people to self-determination. Addressing the UN's top court, Ross Fanning, Attorney General, outlined Ireland's concern over the permanence of Israeli settlements on Palestinian land and said states were obliged not to render aid or assistance in maintaining this situation.
3: In Ireland's view... Israel is already engaged in the process of annexing Palestinian territory. It is doing so de facto through its policy of encouraging demographic change in that territory by population transfer and by the continuous development and maintenance of permanent settlements and infrastructure. Ireland is concerned that it may also be doing so de jure by increasingly extending the application of domestic Israeli law and civilian administration to the settlements in the OPT, thereby integrating them into its own territory and erasing the differences in law between Israel and the settlements.
0: Attorney General Rossa Fanning addressing the International Court of Justice in The Hague. Two men are still being questioned in Kerry this lunchtime in connection with last week's major drug seizure at Ring in the Port of Cork. Separately, it's now believed the drugs seized are ecstasy or MDMA and not crystal meth as originally suspected. Let's talk to our Southern editor, Pascal Sheehy, who has more on this. So what is emerging now, Pascal, about the drugs that were seized?
5: Well, Brian, when Gardaí, um and in this case Guardian and Revenue, make a seizure like this, uh, and details are given initially, they are uh, invariably given subject to analysis. Uh, and what Guardian and Revenue Commissioners said at the time of this seizure last Friday was that the quantity involved was over half a million tonne. Uh, uh, sorry, half a tonne. That's uh, 546 kilograms. Uh, and they describe the substance as a synthetic drug uh, subject to analysis with a street value of 32.8 million euros. So since uh, last Friday I have been asking Gardy and the revenue commissioners uh, for confirmation of what type of synthetic drug was involved. Uh, Forensic Science Ireland analysed the drug uh, and furnished the results of that analysis uh, to Guardi and the revenue commissioners and they have confirmed now that the substance involved uh, was not the uh, initial suspicion of uh, crystal meth but but in actual fact, was uh, ecstasy. Uh, I don't believe that it was in tablet form. It was possibly in powder or in a gel. Uh, but the street value is unaffected uh, by the confirmation that the suspect uh, that the uh, substance is ecstasy or MDMA as it would be referred to uh, sometimes also um, uh, the street value uh, remains at in excess of 30 million euro now Gardaí are continuing to question the two men uh, involved and they have until tomorrow morning to
0: charge or release them. Pascal thanks very much for that our southern letter Pascal Sheehy there the Minister for Justice has said she's fully committed to assisting the UK's inquiry into the OMA bombing to the greatest extent possible Okay. Helen Nackenty was responding to publication today of the terms of reference for the Inquiry. Michael Gallagher, whose son Aidan was among 29 people killed in the Oma bomb, said legislation would have to be passed in the Doyle to facilitate the Inquiry's access to intelligence available in the Republic. A short time ago, we spoke to Michael Gallagher and began by asking him for his assessment of the terms of reference.
8: Well, I had good read through them yesterday when we got them. And I was surprised that there were everything that we felt, there, everything in it that we needed. You know, it touched on all the main points. And then the, the last point it said was if there's any other relevant information. So, you know, everything looks really good. All we need to do now is hope that the witnesses that are called will cooperate with the inquiry
0: Crucially of course there is the question of cross-border cooperation isn't there because the bombing was planned in the Republic the bomb (coughs) came from the Republic Uh, those who carried out the attack uh, were, were based here so what are you hoping for in terms of cooperation from the authorities on this side of the border?
8: Well, we we, there was a number of families went down and we had a meeting with the Tarnished and the Justice Minister. And basically what they were saying is that they weren't keen on having... Uh, public inquiry in the Republic, they would rather have one in Oma and they would feed into that. But the, the, it wasn't set in stone and it was agreed that we would talk about this after. They, they put a lot of emphasis on the terms of reference. They would decide then what way they would go. As, as we're speaking here now, our solicitor is writing a letter to them requesting uh, a meeting meeting. To discuss what they promised in June. So I think that's important that we we have that discussion with the ministers. And having looked at it and thought about it for quite some time, we feel that the only way that it can work is for the Republic to put legislation through in the Doyle that gives the same power, gives the inquiry the same power uh south as a half north, the same power to compel witnesses um and you know to carry out their business in that way. The only alternative to that is for the government to set up an inquiry in the Republic. There's mm. you know, there doesn't seem to be any halfway
0: house in it. Mm. Because presumably what you'd be hoping to hear is direct evidence from i guess at this stage retired senior guardie others uh, on on this side of the of the border who have knowledge or who might have knowledge yes. they could help to establish exactly what happened
8: that's exactly what we need and we'll be doing the same here in oma the the, the legal team of the inquiry will be summoning people with knowledge Senior police officers, intelligence officers, to come forward and assist the inquiry, and that's just exactly the same powers as we need mm. in the Republic. It's, it's the only way we feel it could work.
0: Yeah. Also, presumably, access to relevant documents, to to the records, to some of that background material as well.
8: Yes, absolutely. Um, and and that's that's what the inquiry is doing now, as we speak. They're gathering all the information, and there'll be a a long read-in to the actual first hearings in the inquiry. So it is essential that both police forces on both sides of the border fully cooperate.
0: So really, it's, it's either an inquiry, as you say, on, on this side of the border, which I think Micheál Martin has said certainly at the moment he doesn't think is optimal, or, or legislation that will allow the inquiry to compel witnesses from, from the Republic.
8: Yes. That yesterday, I think it was yesterday, the Tornish that said that you know, the, the government in Dublin will assist in every way that they can. They'll not, they'll not be found wanting. So that's just having looked at it and looked at different ways that it could work. These are the two ways that we feel that would be uh, that would give the inquiry the information that it needed.
0: And that's Michael Gallagher from the Oma family speaking to me a little earlier. Back with more after this short break.
6: Elaine and Jimmy are 68. They still look at each other the same way they did when they first met, and they're still excited about what comes next. If you're a homeowner over 60, a lifetime loan secured against your house from Spry Finance could help you to keep enjoying life. For a free consultation in the comfort of your own home, talk to us at 015822580 or visit spryfinance.ie because life never gets old over 60s only product eligibility criteria apply senior money mortgages Ireland. DAC trading as seniors money Spry Finance and Spry is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland RTE Radio 1 Shania Twain let's go girls live in Dublin Shania Twain
3: that don't impress me much performing one incredible show Malahy Castle on Friday, June 28. You're still, you're still Tickets available now from Ticketmaster.ie. Subject to license. No, I
6: love
3: Let's go! Tickets
6: available now. Music updates on RTE Radio 1.
0: Hello again. You're listening to the news at one. In the Doyle, Thornish to Mehol, Martin has expressed concern at the high numbers dying on our roads and in particular the number of young people. A pedestrian who died following a road accident in the town of Balinan, County Mayo has been named locally as 33-year-old James Moyles. Our Western correspondent Pat McGrath joins us now. This is an accident that happened, um, Pat, on Tuesday evening.
9: Yeah, this happened on Lord Edward Street in Ballina, That forms part of the N59 to cross Malina through the outskirts of Balinan. James Moyles was walking with his niece along the route. He's understood to have been crossing the road when they were both struck by a vehicle at around 6.25 on Tuesday evening. Emergency services were at the scene quite quickly, but Mr Moyles sustained critical injuries. He was taken to Mayo University Hospital in Castle Bar, but died there yesterday evening. The young girl believed to be about five or six years of age was also taken to hospital where she was treated for non-life-threatening injuries uh, overnight before being subsequently discharged. And what is known about James Moyles, Pat? Well, as you say, he was he was 33 years of age, Brian, and from the Mount Assumpta area of Ballinan. Our local representatives say the tragedy has cast a pall of gloom over the town. Independent Councillor Mark Duffy today said uh, James Moyles was a familiar figure, well-known, uh, a lovely guy. He described him as from a well-known family, and he said people in the area had been devastated by his death. He's the sixth pedestrian to have been killed on the roads in 2024, and his death brings to 33 the number of lives lost in traffic collisions so far this year. Funeral arrangements have been announced this lunchtime. Mr Moyles will be laid to rest next Monday following funeral mass at St Patrick's Church in Ballina.
0: Thanks very much for that, Pat. Late Late Show host Patrick Keelty will be the Grand Marshal of the 2024 St. Patrick's Day Parade in Dublin. The St. Patrick's Festival Committee has announced details of the March 17th parade, which expects to attract 500,000 to a million people to the city centre. Marie Gallagher is chair of the St. Patrick's Day Festival and she joins us now. Very welcome to the programme. So what can people expect to see if they, if they make it to Dublin on the 17th?
6: Oh, Brian, it's just going to be a fantastic festival. We are so excited. Um, we're expecting, as you say, over five hundred thousand um, and and hopefully more than that to visit the city um, for the parade. It is really a just a really exciting spectacle. It's our biggest parade ever. Um we have um over twelve marching bands traveling from the US. Um we have over twenty other pageants and performances. Um, so it is just going to be really fantastic, the city is going to be on fire. the colour the music, the excitement and the crack, um, so we're really excited and we're particularly delighted that uh, Patrick Guilty is going to be our Grand Marshal 2024 um, so yeah, it's it's, it's it's really building up to be a wonderful day and we just hope now that the sun shines mm-hmm. and that, uh, <laughs> that people come out and join us, which is always We wish,
0: <laughs> we wish, but 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 I suppose also after the events there before Christmas, the the riots we saw in Dublin City Centre, um, this is, I suppose, an opportunity very definitely to reclaim the capital.
6: Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, Dublin really comes into its own on St. Patrick's Day. The colour, the people on the streets, as I say, just the whole sense of fun and crack and um, good humour. And we are really looking forward to showing Dublin in its best light on the 17th of March and indeed over that weekend. Mm. Um, You know, there is international media, the US media cover it. We get fantastic coverage. So it's a really great opportunity for us to 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 show Dublin in its best.
0: Yeah. And are there particular bespoke security arrangements put in place?
6: Well, we work very closely. The festival team works very closely, hand in hand, with the Gardley and with Dublin City Council. So there is always, um, you know, very very tight security around the festival. We've been delivering the festival without incident for many years. So we're pretty we're pretty experienced at this, um, and um, so we have no concerns. We're just looking forward to a really mm. great day.
0: It's going to be a busy weekend in, in Dublin, Ireland, against Scotland on the on the sixteenth the at the Aviva. The parade then on the seventeenth. Would you have any chance of getting a hotel room at any kind of reasonable price at this stage?
6: Well, I I don't know about that, Brian. I think certainly from the festival perspective, um, we find that that people who who are coming, particularly from abroad, Mm. and those who are participating, tend to book um, considerably in advance. So, for example, the marching bands that come from the US, they fundraise for a number of years before Mm. coming to Dublin. Um, And so they book their hotels usually, you know, 14, 18 months in advance to get the best deal. But look, it's going to be a very exciting weekend in Dublin. Dublin is definitely the place to be uh, on St. Patrick's weekend and um, yeah. you know, if you can't get a hotel room this year then maybe you need to book for next year.
0: Alright, well we leave it there Marie. Thank you very much indeed. The chair of the St. Patrick's Day Festival Marie Gallagher there. Well let's return now to our main news this lunchtime. That publication by RT of the updated legal advice in relation to releasing data on exit pass packages uh, paid to former executives who left the organisation. Tommy Meskel of our political staff is standing by. you've been getting some reaction uh, to this the legal advice uh, to RT is not to release uh, this information and we heard earlier from the Director General that uh, it's legal advice which, which he'll be
2: following what's been the response there where you are Tommy? Well, the likes of Alan Dillon, who is a Fine TD and a member of the Media Committee and the Public Accounts Committee, he has said that he still wants RTE to give a breakdown of the amount of money paid to individuals, but with names redacted. He also wants clarification on how the figures were calculated and whether such exit deals were afforded to more junior members of staff in RTE. More broadly, though, Brian, I think there is an acknowledgement amongst politicians that the advice given to RTE is pretty robust. It Warns of legal consequences, civil and criminal consequences if RTE were to break those disclosure agreements the likes of Brian Stanley he's the chair of the Public Accounts Committee and he's welcomed an announcement by Kevin Backhurst that he has written to former executives going back as far as 2016 asking them to waive their confidentiality. The chair of the media committee then Neve Smith, she says that the focus for her is trying to get witnesses who haven't contributed to her committee so far to try and get them to contribute. Some of those witnesses have cited illness as the reason as to why they cannot. She's looking to see as to whether they could engage by written statement or via video call. All right. Tony Maskell at Leicester House. Thanks very much for that.
0: Sport on RTE Radio 1.
10: And it's a very good afternoon to Andrew O'Connor. And a very good afternoon to you, Brian. Starting with rugby, and it's been reported by the 42 that Peter Romani and Conor Murray will continue to play with Munster and Ireland into next season after both were offered provincial contracts. It seems now the 34-year-olds may both have their central contracts extended too. The Irish team to play Wales in Saturday's Six Nations Championship game in Dublin will be named shortly at two o'clock this afternoon, with Kieran Frawley expected to be named at fullback in place of the injured Hugo Keenan. And as you heard earlier on this program from our soccer correspondent Tony O'Donohue, the Football Association of Ireland has admitted that it used some of the 33.7 million euro provided for COVID-19 resilience to pay off a legacy debt, which was against the terms of state funding intended only to offset turnover losses caused by the pandemic. In golf, Leona Maguire is six shots adrift of the lead after the opening round of the Honda LPGA in Thailand at the Siam Country Club. The world number 27 posted a 200-par round of 70, with Taiwan's Pei Yun Chen leading the way an 8-under. On the Ladies' European Tour, day one of the Lala Meriem Cup in Morocco, Olivia Mahaffey and Lauren Walsh both shot level par 73s, with Spain's Marta Martin leading on three under. And on the DP World Tour round one of the Kenya Open in Nairobi, Connor Purcell is on three over through 15 holes, seven strokes behind the early leaders. And on the PGA Tour, playing day one of the Mexico Open, yet to commence. uh, But Porter Carrington will tee off this afternoon at 2.25. Now to hockey in the men's pro league in India. They're into the fourth quarter, just the last couple of minutes. And Ireland are trailing Australia by four goals to one. Shane O'Donohue with the uh, goal.